0: Hello, you're listening to the 10x9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran. We have four stories on this podcast on the theme danger. It was recorded in the black box in Belfast on February 27th, 2019. First up, here's Eddie Baker.
1: You know something, Eddie, says Pete, as we stand and watch the bus drive off into the night. We are such good people. I laugh as we pick up our guitars and cross the road towards our bus stop. It's about 1am on a Friday evening and we're outside Arna's Grove Tube Station in North London. Pete and I play in a band together and tonight was band practice. Band practice turned into a band meeting. A band meeting turned into a session in the pub and a session in the pub turned into Pete needing to stay in my flat because he's missed his last train home. Pete is declaring us a couple of good boys because we have just helped a slightly drunk young woman to get the correct bus home. We'd insisted on waiting with her until her carriage arrived, consequently declaring ourselves streetwise saviours of the night. <laughs> so now as I'm squinting at the bus timetable in the dim flickering lights of the shelter, Pete is still talking about our moral fortitude. But then he trails off. So I turn round, and I find myself nose to nose with a hooded man, a very scary looking hooded man. And in my peripheral vision, I can see Pete in a similar predicament with a scary looking hooded man of his own. We've got knives, declares my scary man, gesturing towards the outline of a blade poking out from his jacket pocket. Give us your phones and whatever's in your wallets. I mumble a few swear words involuntarily, but we surrender more or less immediately. This is largely because Pete and I have both made the same crucial observation. They have not asked us to hand over our guitars. Now I have no problem handing over my phone or the £10 note in my wallet, but my beloved 1966 Fender Jaguar Absolutely, the sort of possession I would do something stupid to hold on to. So we produced our wallets first. I offered a £10 mate and I find myself actually apologising that I'm not holding more. The <laughs> but then I look over to Pete, who is emptying a handful of change from his wallet and holding out to his scary man. Sorry, mate, says Pete, I've only got shrapnel. Scary man refuses to take it, (laughs) deciding that the poultry sum is not even worth the effort of holding out his hand. So at this point, this has me wondering, should I interject at this point to maybe suggest a cost-benefit analysis here? Sort of an appraisal of the time that they're currently spending on this so far fruitless endeavour. But I really don't want to push our luck. I just keep thinking, Eddie, think of the guitars, think of the guitars. Your phones, barks one of the men. Pete offers his first. It's a retro Nokia style handset. <laughs> the sort that can text, call, cool, that's it. His scary man snorts with derision and declares, I'm not taking that piece of crap. My phone, on the other hand, is a little newer than Pete's, so my scary man happily takes it off me. Could you do me a favour? I find myself saying, my mouth apparently speaking without permission of my brain, Can you give me back a SIM card? He stares at me. Pete stares at me. Pete's scary man stares at me. Only, I start I've got a lot of contacts on there. He shrugs and he pops off the back cover of my phone and he starts trying to find the SIM card. The problem is it's dark. It's like one in the morning. These things are quite fiddly. I start trying to help him. Yeah, yeah, no, it's there, no. You have to push it in first and then it releases. It takes him so long to get the SIM card out, all four of us have become invested in the challenge. We're working as a team towards a common goal. So when he finally releases the SIM and hands it back to me, I feel like we've all bonded slightly. I feel like, clapping my hands together and saying, well, what are we all doing after this, guys? big fuck at mine. But I don't say this, I just pocket my sim, and he pockets my phone, and then his eyes lock onto the guitars. I freeze up. Adrenaline starts flooding my veins. But then he says, we're not gonna take your guitars, mate. That's your livelihood, it?" And I am so stunned by this comment the very idea that we make money from our band.
2: <laughs> Clearly,
1: he has never heard us. <laughs> I'm still processing this as the men take a step back and they use a particular four-letter word to invite us to leave the immediate area. So we march up the road as fast as we can, not once looking back. It's a 20-minute walk to my flat, and despite the guitars on our back, we do it in 15. On the way, remember, of course, that Pete still has his phone. So we call the police as we walk. They tell us to stay put and wait for a unit to come to us. And I'll use a particular four-letter word to disagree with this suggestion. <laughs> I give them the address of my flat and I say that they should meet us there. So a few minutes later, two police officers arrive. We sit in the back of their car and we make our statements. One of the police officers becomes visibly irritated because I can't tell him the colour of either of the men's jackets. The bus shelter was unlit after all. And so I start explaining that actually, mate, there are two types of photoreceptors in the human retina, (laughs) right? Rods and clones. Rods are responsible for vision at low-light levels, but they do not mediate colour vision. (laughs) He stares at me. Pete stares at me. I (laughs) stare at my feet. After the statements are taken, the officers ask if we'll go for a ride with them to see if we might spot the muggers. Pete declines because he's at this point exhausted and he just wants to go to sleep. But I gleefully accept the invitation. So we drive over to the scene of the crime, and we're immediately flagged down by a young man who reports that he's just been mugged at point while waiting for a bus. I squeal with excitement, which causes him and the police officers to turn around and stare at me. I'm just excited to compare notes. So the officers they tell the guy to hop in, and we all go for a ride around together. By this point, I am under, under no illusions whatsoever. I'm having a lovely time. <laughs> the young guy, his name is Chris, and he lives locally. I only know this from listening to him give his statement. He's not interested in making any small talk with me. Even after he gets stumped by the jacket colour question, and I start going on about rods and cones. <laughs> After a few minutes of driving and hushed conversations, the police officers turn around and they inform us that they have a couple of suspects in mind. And they're going to go and raid the suspect's last known address. They want us to wait in the back of the police car while this happens, and then they will bring the suspects past the car for us to identify. Chris is not keen on this idea. Chris just wants to go home. But really, I think Chris just wants to get away from me. But somehow the officers convince him to join us and we are driven to a nearby tower block estate in Armsgrove and a fleet of police cars are already waiting, including a number of dog units. I start excitedly pointing at the dogs and telling Chris about them. Chris just stares out of the opposite window, shaking his head and trying to ignore me. And the officers, they all head off into the tower block and they leave Chris and I alone in the locked car. We wait in that car. For an hour and a half.
0: <laughs>
1: during which time Chris resists all of my attempts at small talk. When the police officers eventually do come back they look surprised to see us. It is clear that they had forgotten we were in the car. And <laughs> so visibly embarrassed they drop off Chris and myself at our respective homes. Chris does not even say goodbye as he gets out. <laughs> so now it's just me and the two police officers. I turn to them Clap my hands together. So, what will we were doing after this, drinks of mine.
0: That was Eddie's second time in front of the 10x9 mic. You can hear his debut on podcast 82, where he pays tribute to his cat, Dodger. Karen Hadlington is next, and it was her first time in front of the 10x9 audience. We'd hardly know it.
3: It had been a long day, preceded by a very long night. I had passed the time walking the streets of London, having priced myself out of bed after very little sleep. I ventured first to Camden town, before trolling the antiquarian bookshops of Charing Cross Road in search of a book which unfortunately still eludes me. I was getting tired and thinking of heading back to the hotel when I got a call from my colleague asking if I could meet for a drink. Easily persuaded, I welcomed the opportunity for a chat and a seat for a while. We met in the Pillars of Hercules in Greek Street, Soho. Soaked in history and atmosphere, it was a regular haunt of mine when I was in town. I wasn't supposed to be working that night, but after a couple of drinks and some lively conversation, I had agreed to review the gig my colleague was photographing at the Borderline Club. Only a matter of feet from where we sat, I figured that while I was there already, it was an opportunity not to be missed. It turned out a great night and after having a quick informal chat with the bands who had played we eventually made our way to the nearest tube station when i read the notice stating it was closed due to fire the urge to get a cab back to the hotel had been overwhelming but despite it being the end of october it was a balmy night and reluctantly i walked with my colleague doctor circus where we parted company him telling me to change at notting hill for an hour's train At Notting Hill, having been walking all day and standing all night with only a relatively brief late afternoon respite, my feet were throbbing and I cast my eye about looking for an empty seat. To my dismay, each bench was occupied by a lone male. Due to the lateness of the hour, trains were less frequent and the last thing I wanted was small talk. For me, the night was over, or so I thought. Feeling defeated, I perched myself on the end of the closest bench to me, careful to avoid eye contact in case it was misinterpreted as an invite for conversation. Have a good night, the stranger asked. My response was polite but clipped. You're from Northern Ireland, came his reply, and so it appeared was he. By this time I couldn't avoid looking at him and he bore a striking resemblance to young George Best. Same power, same eyes, same bone structure. He told me where i originated from and that he'd been living in london for years while i volunteered that i was there for work and was leaving the next day i considered it a brief and not altogether disagreeable exchange of pleasantries his phone rang mere moments before the train approached i rose from my seat, mouthed a goodbye and set one foot in the train before being yanked violently back onto the platform by the strap of my handbag wait he said covering the mouthpiece of his phone I really want to speak to you, I haven't spoken to anyone from home in ages. Shaking with nerves, observing the large gap between the train and the platform, the train doors closing and its hasty departure, it didn't seem I had much choice. I'd had a close shave, I could so easily have fallen. Glancing around the station I realised we were the only two left and as he continued his phone conversation I tentatively sat back down trying to figure out how best to handle the situation. It was a conversation of an unusual nature, and one I couldn't help overhearing. It seemed he was reporting an assault to the police, one which had taken place months earlier. He had to provide his name and address, which I quickly typed into a text message and sent to the only person I was sure would still be awake, briefly explaining the situation. I also sent a couple of sne- sneaky pictures I'd taken under the guise of trying to get a phone signal, before typing the address into Google Maps. A stunning property in Fitzrovia sprung up as a result. It suited his appearance, I thought. He was exceptionally well-dressed, well-spoken, and good-looking. What didn't fit was why he would be sitting in Hill station at that time of night, alone, and with no particular place to go. The response to my text was immediate and tied with my own instincts. Stay calm, stay friendly, get yourself amongst other people as soon as possible. I nervously stifled a laugh the second message was Fred. He's a dead ringer for George Best. Let me know when you're safe. The conversation with the place seemed to take forever, but then again, so did the next train. When he had ended the call, he asked where I was going, and I told him truthfully that I was down in Arles court. I come with you, he said. We can go to the Troubadour. The Troubadour? The iconic club I'd heard so much about? Had the situation been different, I may have been tempted. But considering the bizarre circumstances, the time of night, and the battery warning light on my phone, I thought it wise to get back to my hotel as quickly as possible. I made my excuses, explaining that I had an early flight the next morning and I really must get the next train. When at last it arrived, I stepped on in trepidation. The carriage was empty and I took a seat. He also boarded and took a seat beside me, my anxiety increasing with every passing moment. I know you said you are leaving in the morning, but could we just have one drink together, please? He fixed me with an intense stir and I could tell he'd had a feel already. Okay, I find myself saying, one drink and then I really have to go. I was familiar with the pub directly across from Morris Court Station and knew it had an entrance at the front and one at the side. I considered that the best plan was to let him order drinks, excuse myself for a moment and run out the side door giving him the slip. Unfortunately, the side door was locked, the pub was closing and when I was forced to retreat back to the front bar, area, uh, I found they'd already called last orders and wouldn't serve him. Ah oh, well, i better be getting back, I said in mock disappointment. When will you be back in London, he asked. I didn't get a chance to lie. Give me your number, he commanded. I did intend to give him the wrong number, but he followed with, I'll call you now, then you'll have my number and you can save it on your phone. So I gave him the number, the right one, and he called it there and then as I wondered if he was really going to let me walk away. Looking utterly forlorn, he did. Even the advancing footsteps I heard behind me a couple of months later didn't belong to him, just someone else trying to get home. In the safety of the hotel room, I saved his phone number, blocked it, and let myself breathe a sigh of relief. Upon return to Belfast, I relayed the scenario in full to my mother and showed her the photos I'd taken. She eyed the photos, then me, her face a picture of confusion. He wanted to take you to the troubadour, and you didn't go. Are you mad? Her reaction amused me, but was typical of her. She was familiar with London in a different time, an era when there was no internet, no, no mobile phones, and when people were more carefree and less wary of strangers. I have no idea whether the stranger's intentions were malicious or he was just seeking a bit of company and a familiar accent, but I was ill at ease and was frightened enough to note down his particulars, capture his image and send them off to a third party, just in case I vanished into the night and to be heard from again. I've still never been to the Troubadour, and I've never crossed paths with a stranger again, but who knows, in London, anything can happen unusually dull.
0: First timer, Karen Hetherington. there. Next up, David Burke. You can hear David's hilarious story about sperm donation on Podcast 45, but first, prepare to have your heart broken with this danger story. Sometimes
2: the real danger isn't obvious. It can be as small as the head of a hat pin hidden from view, especially when that pin is lurking within the velvety layers of a delicious chocolate parfait. I notice the tang of metal hit my tongue too late as I swallow, yet at the last moment the needle catches in my teeth. Confused, I pull the hat pin from my mouth and stare cross-eyed at the fine needle tip. Oh, I almost died, I say without thinking. My statement interrupts the table. Olivia puts down her coffee cup, and Michael stops scrolling through images on the back of my camera. It's filled with snaps taken that afternoon from the Amsterdam Sex Museum, and I'm currently winning our holiday competition to see who can take a photo of the largest ornamental piece. (laughs) Michael stares at me at the near-fatal hat pin. David, that's brilliant, he he declares excitedly, which, if I'm honest, feels a little insulting. No, don't you see, he explains, this means we can blackmail them into giving us free desserts. Uh, And a trio of the head chefs deconstructed, please don't sue us, mango sliders later, and the three of us are beaming as we head out of the restaurant for our last night in the city. This has been a wonderful trip. Three old school friends celebrating the end of my undergraduate degree. We'd had culture day. Olivia and myself listened to a classical concert and appreciated political swan art at the Rijksmuseum, uh, while Michael instead took himself off to the local coffee shops uh, to investigate what could be the difference between Irish and Dutch tray bakes. (laughs) 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 Without sampling, I'm assured. We've had bike day, windmill day, and Olivia falls in love with David's suave Dutch university friend called Clav's day. That was a fun day. Uh, But today is our finale, and that can only mean one thing, of course, sexy day, which is all a very roundabout way of explaining why the grandson of a moderator of the Presbyterian Church of Ireland enters the red light district in Amsterdam.
0: <laughs>
2: we walk between neon lights that reflect off wet cobbles. My gleeful lightheadedness at this gentle rule breaking soon fades, actually. And I have become struck by two realizations in quick succession. The first is that, apart from Olivia, everyone in these dark streets seems to be male, I search the half lift crowds but cannot see any woman. The second realisation is that I'm actually mistaken, for there are, of course, dozens of women, only every woman there is partitioned Panglass. glass. My school friends and I leave the red lights pretty soon and walk back to our hostel by the Anemti Canal near the Jordan. My body doesn't register the danger at first. I assume the two approaching figures are not part of my narrative. Instinctively, I label them ignorable, like I do every day to about a hundred people that I call stranger. But something is wrong. They are not walking to avoid us, but heading towards us. Alarm whizzes through my gut. I keep walking ahead. Michael panics. Michael runs. But a third figure is behind him. I turn round. The figure is brandishing a knife. Have you ever wondered what you do in those situations? Have you ever daydreamed of tackling an armed assailant and saving the day? I know I know what I'd do. I stand helplessly and watch as my friend is pinned between a canal and a knife. I've known this feeling of utter helplessness at least once before. On a school trip to New England and skiing, I tumbled on the slopes. Hurtling towards the edge, I fell into the sky. I flew through 10 metres of air before landing into powder. And I can remember looking up the steep slopes I locked eyes with Michael staring back down. Olivia is in front, away from the assailants. Michael is behind, about to leap into the canal. One of the figures presses into my shoulder and with one violent tug my camera strap breaks and a moment later all three figures vanish. We are alone again on the wet cobbled street and it feels like almost nothing has happened. Only I'm missing my fancy SLR camera filled with the photos of the world's largest phallus. <laughs> <laughs> we walk silently for a while. Then nervous laughter starts, linking us together, releasing our tension. Then genuine laughter, thinking of those men, flicking through a dozen photographs of the three of us speaking in this space beside various objects at the Amsterdam Sex Museum. We relax and we enter the world of school friends and holiday. The danger has passed. And... <laughs> and <then laughs> Because sometimes, the real danger isn't obvious. It can be as small as the head of a hatpin hidden from view. The danger walks with us as we walk back from the Jordan. It flies with us on a plane back to Ireland. None of us realise the danger for several months. Then the morning headaches begin. The inexplicable depression and funny feelings. A ball of malfunctioning cells lurking within folds of grey and white matter is no longer as small as the head of a hatpin. It grows and it grows and it horribly grows into something that becomes labelled a glioblastoma. It seems darkly fitting that my car breaks down as Olivia and I pull into the Marie Curie car park. One year has gone by, and it's hard to see Michael this way, contained within the folds of his white hospice bed. He should be bonding towards us. Michael should always be bonding. But there is still so much love in that room as three old school friends we tell silly stories of their Paris adventure in the city of Amsterdam. The following year, Olivia and I complete a hike up to Pyramid Lake in Jasper National Park. Olivia puts down her backpack to marvel at a view of snow capped mountains and dark conifers in sunlight. As I contemplate jumping into the icy cold waters, Michael is with us in our laughter, in our memories and the curry daffodils that cover Olivia's backpack. A sign in the little shop in Jasper warned us about which trails might contain grizzly bears. Danger has a new meaning for us now. Even so, we choose a safer path.
0: Thanks David. A change of tone now to see us out. Here's Nilla McKeever living her life of danger.
4: Okay, let's get on with it. Are you, t- are you starting the clock now? Has it started already? Okay. Well, they say things aren't always black and white. Well, that afternoon they were, literally. Should I wear the black linen trousers or the white linen trousers? Black or white? Black or white? I had been all set to pull on the white ones, but for some reason, just as I, as I had one foot inserted down one wide, flappy leg, I paused, removed my foot, debated, and finally chose the black. A small detail perhaps, but one which in retrospect always makes me wonder if there's such a thing as a premonition or helpful spirits guiding us unseen in our choices. I arrive at Queen's University PE Centre mid-afternoon. It's mid-May, warm out, sweltering inside. If you were blindfolded, you'd always know immediately that you were in the changing rooms of a swimming pool, wouldn't you? The smell is so particular. Chlorine overlaid with herbal essences, shampoo, damp tiles, rubber and feet. And the whole heady mix turned up to 11 by the hot hairdryer air and the thermostat permanently set at sauna. (laughs) And the sounds, distant shouts from the pool ricocheting off the hard tiles, funneled in through that horrible shower tunnel between the wet and the nominally dry areas. That afternoon, I didn't consciously register the smells or the sounds. I wasn't, to use a trendy term, mindful of my physical surroundings. (laughs) All I could smell was fear. All I could hear was my heartbeat pounding in my ears. All I could taste was metal in my mouth. All I could see was my own imminent death. I removed my clothes, placed them neatly in the eye-level locker. I couldn't believe I would ever see them again. I squeezed into my tight one-piece swimsuit, adjusting the elasticated edges all around my soft, squishy bits. In the mirror, I watched myself tuck brown hair inside a tight-fitting rubber bathing cap which made me look bald. I looked scared. Bald and scared. You see, I wasn't there for a swim, oh no. I was there for something much bigger than 20 laps. I was there to prove to myself and the world that it is possible to be terrified and still do the thing that terrifies. I was there to jump off the high diving board. <laughs> Even talking about it brings back the terror. So let's back up a wee bit. Who in their right minds chooses to jump off a staggeringly high diving board? Well, I did for years every week between the ages of 10 and 13. Lisburn baths, Saturday afternoons, I would fly up those narrow metal ladders. Up to the first level, peh, past it. Up to the second level, nah, done that. Up, 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 up to the very top. A large concrete platform with a side rail stopped halfway along, leaving nothing but air butting up to the edge. And I used to jump. wee, And I used to laugh. <laughs> and I used to shout again, again. 35 years later, that young girl is a distant memory and my fully grown adult self has been living with an extreme fear of heights. Since she was 22 and got paralyzed 12 feet up a rock face on the Silver Strand Beach in Donegal. I say living with the fear of heights, more like living in it. I didn't have it, it had me. A helicopter ride over the Grand Canyon for a total waste of time as I kept my eyes squeezed shut the whole time. <laughs> Jokes about not crossing Caracareed Rope Bridge any anytime I took visitors up the Antrim coast. Laughing as I grounded myself at fun fairs, declaring that (laughs) no way would I ever go on that roller coaster. (laughs) Even watching people on it was enough to make me want to poke. And then I did a course called Landmark Education. And one of the teachers on the course said that anywhere where you say, I can't, you have no freedom. Step forward, red flag and bull. (laughs) I heard that as a challenge. And I like a challenge. So I conquered my fear of speaking the truth. I had the scary conversations that I'd always felt I couldn't have with people in my life. I felt the fear and did it anyway. I pushed the boundaries and survived. I was great. I was brave. I was free. There was no looking back. But there was no looking down either. The big bad fear of heights was still lurking. It hadn't gone away, you know. That morning, I woke up. And my stomach told me with jelly certainty that I was going to jump off the high board in Queen's PEC to prove physically that I could be terrified and still act. Yes, I would do this heroic thing and it would make me invincible. But now I'm in the changing room and I don't feel like I'm going to be invincible. I feel like I'm going to be sick. Fingering the slimy tiles, I step gingerly through the barrier shower and out into the cathedral-esque space that holds the pools. One for swimming, one for dying, I mean diving. (laughs) Do it, do it, do it, oh God, I'm going to be sick. One foot up on the rung of the ladder, oh God, I'm really going to be sick. I split into two parts, terror so huge it obliterates everything except itself. And this body that's doing its own thing without me even involved. My legs are shaking, spastic jerks. My heart is beating so loudly I swear I can hear it. Tight bands are squeezing my chest. I'm going to die of not breathing and yet my body keeps climbing even as my head screaming, Stop! Danger! You're going to die! And here I am, on the top platform now. Oh, it's very, very high. Staying in the middle, I inch my way towards the front, body leaning back. I stop, two feet from the edge. I can't go any further. But I can't go back because going back down that ladder would be equally terrifying. I'm stuck, petrified. I am a rock caught between two hard places. Then crazy takes hold. What if I jumped? What if I don't jump out far enough and I end up hitting my head on the edge of the board? I peer over. The pool's tiny. What if I jump out too far and miss the water altogether and hit my head over on the floor? I'm going to hurt myself. From away down below a voice says, you're not going to hurt yourself. <laughs> Who's that reading my mind? It's an angel sent to reassure me. Just bring yourself to the edge. I slide my eyes down my legs and creep my left foot towards the line where the platform stops and empty begins. Now bring your other foot forward. What? I'm leaning back at 45 degrees. If I move my other feet, it will fall backwards. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't. I jump. I jump. I'm falling through blue, empty space. I'm falling and falling and falling. People say it only takes a second, but I swear that falling went on for ages. And then, I hit the water. Down, 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 down. Falling inside water for the same length of time I fell through the air. I haven't enough breath. Oh God, I've survived the fall, and now I'm going to drown. Can't get back up. I burst up out of the water like a newborn, hauling its first breath into gasping lungs. I'm alive! I'm alive! Oh my God, I'm alive! I can hardly get myself up the ladder out of the pool. My body is shaking so violently. A young boy, not an angel, in lifeguard garb, smiles and says, most people go straight back up and do it again right away. Are you going to do that? I look at him thinking, are you mad? Are you crazy? Are you insane? I don't actually say those words, of course. What actually I say is much more succinct. Fuck off. (laughs) And I stagger like a newborn drunk, hand out to steady myself, back through the shower, back into the changing room. And there is my locker. Here are my clothes. Here is my life. It's just been sitting here waiting for me to come back. The whole thing took three minutes. <laughs> three minutes? I went to hell and I came back in three minutes? Wow, life was never going to be the same again. And the trousers? What of them? Well, they came into their own later on that evening as I was helping to set up a hotel function room for an evening session of the Lamarck forum. You see, when you hit a body of water at speed, you go down and the water goes up. Now if you're a woman as it turns out, water goes up and in. But gravity being gravity, what goes up must come down, and it did. Two hours after facing the biggest danger of my life and vanquishing it, as I stood chatting to the hotel events manager, a full pint and a half of warm diving pool water came gushing out and down the legs of my linen trousers. And as I waddled discreetly into the ladies, to a veil of the hot hand-dryer, all I could think was Thank God I chose
3: the black ones. Oh sweet. Lord.
0: <laughs> Nilla McKeever making quite a splash. That's it from the 10 by 9 podcast. 10 by 9 is always free, but if you'd like to contribute to our costs, you can make a donation via PayPal at our website 10x9.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please share the love, give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. But for now, bye-bye.